The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. Welcome to Vision Sunday for the fall season. That's the word. (laughs) You're hanging on the edge of your seat. Um, So is that up there, Fall Vision Sunday? Do you see that right now? All right. So I want to warn you, today is going to be a unique uh, message. It's not a sermon. We're not going to be spending a, a... bulk of our time in one specific passage that I'm going to be expositing, though that is normally what we do the other 51 weeks of the year. This is kind of a public family meeting. And so if you're visiting with us or you've been visiting in the last few weeks, we're excited you're here because this is a great time for you to learn a bit about what we're about and about where we're going in the future. Um, Yeah, so just keep that in mind and have an open mind because I think that um, you might learn something. So... The first thing I want us to do, anytime we kind of look, before we look forward, we want to look back, and we want to make it a regular practice to celebrate the wins and the successes and the ways that God is moving in our community. And so as we look back at the last year, what are some of those things that God has done? The Israelites erected stones in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel to help them remember and recall God's faithfulness. And so this is one of the best ways we can spend our time together, is to look back and see what God has been up to. And so the first thing I want to talk about is the move downstairs. We were upstairs in that big, large, cavernous room, and back just before Easter, we made the transition down here. And I'm not so much thinking about just the aesthetics of this room and things like that, but since that transition, um, I think it's safe to say that there's a new level of intimacy that we're experiencing as a body simply because of the parameters of this space. And I think that it's been really meaningful for us. Um, I don't know that we'll, we can fully sort of vet the, the upside of making that choice. Um, it's difficult to sort of measure how this has impacted us, but I think that there's more conversations happening throughout the service and at, well after the service than ever before. And I think that's part just spatially and I think that this, this room is more inviting and warm. And so we're, we're excited about that. We're thankful that God has helped us make that transition. Many of you contributed to making this room a, a welcoming place. Thank you. The second thing, I think that our Sunday gatherings have become a celebration of what God is up to throughout the week in the life of each one of us throughout the church. I think that it's not that before this last year that wasn't the case, but that it's really become a time where we get together to enjoy what God is up to throughout the week. Um, We see that happening in home communities. There's a lot of growth and transformation beginning to take place. You know, in home communities or in small groups, there's these stages of a group. You initially join a small group, and typically there's this kind of feeling of excitement. It's new, it's different, it's not something you've been a part of before, but they kind of 
you see this as like the honeymoon stage. And then time goes on, right? And you kind of get used to the rhythm of every week doing the same sorts of things together. And so you become a little bit more apathetic, right? The honeymoon stage is over. And after that, you start to notice things about others in your group that don't necessarily excite you. <laughs> they chew with their mouth open. They talk all the time. Uh, they, never, they never say anything. Whatever it is, right? There's, there's these annoyances that we experience. And it's usually around that time that conflict starts to take place. Because as you've grown a little bit more apathetic and a little bit more annoyed, you start to either get in conflict with those in your group or... You're annoyed by the conflicts that they share they're having outside of the group, right? And it's around that time that most people bail on a home community or bail on a small group. And that's right past that point that Jesus does his best work. Because it's once people begin to open up and they begin to share their flaws and you begin to see their vulnerabilities that God is shaping and bonding you as a group. Now... Joe Schmo, who chews with his mouth open, doesn't bother me so much because I know him in ways that I didn't know him before. I can see how generous he is and that he paid for our meal and we all went out together as a group. Yes. Right? There's things like that. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> You're welcome to do that for me anytime. <laughs> That's when God tends to do his most revitalizing and renewing work in us as a group. And so we've seen a lot of groups, we're still kind of in the beginning stages. Some of the groups are newer, getting familiar with each other, but we're starting to get to that stage of annoyance or frustration and seeing those conflicts take place and vulnerabilities. And it's right about now that God is beginning to really open us up to seeing each other for who we really are. Not just the faults that we have, but the gifts that we each possess. The other... Next thing I would like to mention, um, we moved towards a model of shared leadership in the last year. Um, previously, throughout the history, the 80 years of the church, CB has been a pastor, senior pastor model church, um, meaning that the senior pastor called most of the shots. Um, it's not that other people didn't have a, an opinion or got to weigh in, but that primarily it was one person's vision, uh, more or less, that was kind of spread throughout the church. And so we've, in the last year, made the transition as we've sought the Spirit and gone through a lot of changes as a church to move towards more of a plurality of leadership, where we're leaning into the gifts of one another on the team, on the elder team, on the staff level, and then beyond, in our groups even. Um, we're seeing different men and women step up to lead home communities, to join different groups. And so we're grateful for the way that God has been using that. And I also want to mention that I think that, in particular, we've been leaning into the gifted women in our body in ways that we haven't previously, whether it's by hosting on Sunday mornings, Mackenzie teaching us in the book of Ruth, um, Pastor Kendra. Um, I also want to acknowledge Chris Ray. Chris, Chris is... Yeah. <clears throat> Chris didn't know I was going to do this, so she's really stoked. Um, Today we have our a CB appreciation lunch where we're going to get invite any of you, you know, that, that serve at this body um, to a lunch where we're going to honor you. And I know that one of the things that probably won't happen is that Chris won't get mentioned as one of those primary people. But Chris is a workhorse 
and she does a ton of stuff behind the scenes that makes this all go. And so we're really grateful for women like Chris, Ray, Abby Pratt, Mackenzie, Kendra. Um, we've got a lot of talented, gifted women in our body, and we're grateful for them. The other thing I'd like to mention is the CB stories that we did over the summer through the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, hearing the ways that God is moving, what has brought people to CB, what do they appreciate about Central Bible Church and the life of the community that's going on here. Um, I think it's safe to say that through all the stories we, we heard, one of the common themes is that we're a welcoming bunch. And that's something to be, that's not a result of the leaders, right, just greeting people at the front door. Like, that's, that's an us thing. That's a you thing. And so, thank you. Continue to, continue to be that presence, that welcoming presence, that aroma of Jesus for those that enter our body. Finally, we're on pace to cut our budget deficit in half by the end of 2019. This is a big deal. When it comes to talking about money, especially in the church, you always want to under-promise and over-deliver, okay? So I use that word on pace strategically, um, but we are on pace, and we are confident that hopefully by the end of the year, we will be cutting the, the deficit in half. And that's happen, happening through a number of different things. A big one is just the utility cost that we're saving by not being in the room upstairs. Um, that room is a gigantic room, and it costs a ton of money to heat. One month's gas bill in the winter is about $3,000 upstairs. And do you know how much it is in the summer when we're not using it? 30 That's the swing. So... It's things like that, now being downstairs, not using that, that space in that way, that's a, that's a big part of the reason that we're cutting this deficit in half. Um, we've made some staff transitions. There's some people interested in renting our space upstairs, some of our classrooms that we're in talks with. So we're really excited and grateful for the, uh, the deficit being slashed in half by the end of 2019. Um, one thing I want to mention, this is always fun to do as a pastor, is to talk about money, but the last two months in a row, we've been five, about $5,000 to $6,000 short of hitting our giving goal. So we typically are hoping to get about $25K a month in giving um, from the body, and we're around nineteen to 20000 in the last couple of months, making that deficit, right, that we get to at the end of the year bigger than we anticipated. Um, because this 25K that we're hoping to get month to month is an adjusted budget. It's a, adjusted giving, uh, keeping in mind that there's this big deficit. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're someone that calls Central Bible your home, you've been attending for a while, and you appreciate the ways that God is moving and doing things in this body, I want to call you to give. I want to encourage you to consider giving generously. Um, it's a strange thing that in the church, we're willing to talk about deeply personal things except money. We don't want to talk about our pocketbook and how is that part of our life honoring to Jesus. And I want to mention that many of you are giving faithfully and consistently and generously. And so thank you so much. We're grateful and uh, we're trusting God that he will continue to provide that we might be able to use this building, this space 
um, as a conduit for his grace in our community, in Montevilla. With that, I want to look at quickly, what are we expecting for the fall series? So looking at right now, we're going to begin the Gospel of John next week. Yay! It's a good gospel. There's only four of them, but they're all pretty good. So um, we're excited. We're very excited. Um, We are doing this in seasons, okay? What that means is that we're not going to spend the next two years plotting through the entire gospel of John straight through. So what we're going to do is we are going to go through the entire book, but we're going to do it in sections. So we're going to have a season or, um, I don't know how you want to think about it, but yeah, a season, like, like a television series kind of season. So season one is going to be, who is Jesus? That is the question that we're answering. And all we're going to do for the next 11 weeks is walk through chapter one of John's gospel. Now, typically, we won't take 11 weeks to go through one chapter. But chapter one is a very dense, incredibly rich theological chapter um, in the gospel of John. And so we're going to walk through kind of verse by verse the different identities that John gives to Jesus, that he describes Jesus having his attributes. Um, We'll take a break for Advent, and then we may pick it back up for a month or so in January, and then we'll have a break. Well, we'll do a different series in the spring, but then we'll come back to the Gospel of John again after that. So the Gospel of John is going to be kind of the through line over the next few years, but we're not going to work through it straight through. We'll take breaks to do other things and to cover other content and books in the Bible. Does that make sense? We think it's a good idea. We'll talk more. (laughs) Um, It's a theology-heavy series, and it's an application-heavy series. Um, The single most significant answer to any question that you've ever been asked or will be asked is, who is Jesus? Jesus asked that question of many people in the Gospels. Who do you say that I am? What you think when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And so season one will be very missional in nature, crafting sermons for believers and for unbelievers in this first chapter of John's Gospel. But it's a theologically heavy series. We're going to take kind of a meta-narrative approach to each description of Jesus as we go through the first chapter of the Gospel. And it's an application-heavy series with each theological assertion landing on the ground, getting down to ground level so that we can get into the details of how this affects our everyday life. Jesus is God incarnate, the Son of God, the light of life, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, Rabbi, and the King of Israel. Those are just some of the, each one of those is a sermon. Right? And so those are some of the descriptions that John gives to Jesus that we'll be walking through. It's going to be rich, and we're really excited. Now, looking forward, what can we expect kind of beyond the fall over the next year? What is the general sort of vision that we have for the church? We are calling them formation groups. Think for a moment about the, the trellis and the vine analogy that we've used in the past. In the church, you've got the trellis or the structures in place that give life to the vine, right? You, me, we are the vine. 
We are the people, right? We are the life of the church. And so as a leadership, we're trying to create structures insofar as they help bring life to the vine, to you, the people. So one example is that we have a Tuesday morning Bible study. We've got home communities throughout the week that meet. Obviously, this is a structure, the literal building and us meeting in it every week. And this is another structure that we're kind of beginning to implement in the coming weeks and months. So what are formation groups? Um, Primarily, formation groups are a vehicle that help our discipleship to Jesus flourish. They are comprised of groups or clusters of three to four men or three to four women, preferably from your home community, who gather regularly to be open and accountable to one another as you apprentice Jesus together. Formation groups do not exist merely to help one another better manage our sins. Let me say that again. They do not exist merely to help one another better manage our sins. Rather, they exist to help us live into life in deep communion with the Spirit of God as we resist the desires of the flesh, practice the new life of Christ, and seek to build the kingdom of heaven in our city. Formation groups are one of the areas where we go deeper into nurturing the whole person, mind, body, and spirit, through learning together, through sharing our habits, entering practices, experiences, etc. While it takes a lot of time and a lot of trust, the members in my formation group ought to become the relationships that I am the most vulnerable, open, and accountable to. These are the brothers and sisters, in particular, in the body of Christ that I am submitting myself to and giving authority to speak into my life. Formation groups are not merely a Bible study group. We don't want to simply hear slash study the word of God without putting it into practice, allowing deception into our lives. So while we may read and study scripture together in these groups, they're not solely gathered around that purpose. Rather, these groups exist to participate in the work of the Holy Spirit as he shapes and molds our patterns, habits, thoughts, and behaviors. This means we will regularly discuss things in addition to the Bible, like confession, rest, mission, what we're learning, what God is calling us to, etc. So I'm giving you just broad brushstrokes right now, and I'm going somewhere with this. What are the practices that we'll be doing in formation groups? We're, We're offering five practices that we suggest each formation group participate in. Compared to other disciplines... We believe the following practices can yield potentially greater spiritual fruit for the time, context, and cultural milieu in which we are called to apprentice Jesus. Does that make sense? Yes, I heard mostly yes. So what are the five practices? Confession or repentance, right? Affirmation or encouragement. Mission or Love thy neighbor. Learning is one. You think about Jesus as rabbi. What are we learning? Being intentional about the things that we're consuming. Media, smartphone, uh, movies, that sort of thing. Books. And then rest or Sabbath. And so these are the practices that we think, as we've read, as we've learned from others in books, podcasts, and as, if we, as we've talked as a team that we we feel that these particular practices 
will be beneficial in ways that maybe other spiritual disciplines wouldn't hurt us, but wouldn't yield as much spiritual fruit. We see these as being particularly helpful and insightful for the body of Christ in these groups. And so one thing I want to encourage you with that I'm excited about is that no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter what your age is, anyone can participate in these five practices. This is not a go-do-more-stuff Confession is literally something we're commanded to do. Confess your sins to one another. Not just to God, right? To one another. Affirmation or encouragement. Being encouraging to one another. Calling out the gifts and the passions that we see in each other. Mission, right? Can you think of one person, just one person that you have regular contact with that you'd love to see meet and follow Jesus? And then can you just pray for them? And when you meet with your formation group, ask, hey, have you had any like awesome conversations or meaningful conversations or have you been praying for fill-in-the-blank person? This isn't more stuff that we're asking you to do. It's actually choosing to be intentional about the stuff we're already called to do. Does that make sense? Rest, Right? In a culture that is crazy busy, <laughs> sorry, my daughter just smiled at me, going by the door. In a culture that is crazy busy, right, where we're, we have more things that we can consume than any other generation, pulling back, taking a Sabbath every single week to remember God's faithfulness, to look back at what He's been doing, just like we did a minute ago. Okay, so. I'm guessing you're wondering, yes, I understand what these groups are. Why do we need this, though? Why is this a part of the vision of Central Bible moving forward? And I'm so glad you asked. Here's a long and nuanced answer you probably weren't expecting. Um, But before we jump in to answering that question, um, answering the why question, and I want to say, answering the why question every so often a few times a year, maybe more, um, is a really good thing for us to do. Why are we doing the stuff that we do at this church, in this body? If we don't answer that question consistently, we will grow into apathy, burnout, exhaustion. We may just give up altogether. And so we're going to regularly try to remind ourselves, what is the why behind what we're doing. But before we answer that question, I want to acknowledge that this next section, which is, this is all that's left in this talk, is a lot, okay? It's a lot, and I'm aware of it. You're probably going to be introduced to some new concepts that you may have not heard before, and I want you to know that I'm sympathetic to the reality that this is a lot of content. Do not feel like there's a quiz coming at the end. Don't try to take notes. There's going to be a lot of slides. The goal is not for you to get every single detail. I'm trying to zoom out at a 30,000-foot level and ask the question, why are we doing the things that we're doing as a church? And so, put your thinking caps on. We got this. Every once in a while, I'll just kind of check in and say, how we doing? We got this, though. Let's do it. Ready? Um, To begin, I am significantly indebted to uh, a Christian thinker, a missiologist, cultural commentator, writer, and pastor. His name is Mark Sayers, for his new book right here, 
reappearing church. I'm not, how to, I'm not sure how to say this without sounding hyperbolic, but I believe that this is the most succinct, clear, and powerful book on Christian renewal and the church in the West. Um, I'm going to be borrowing heavily from Sayers for this next section of our time together, and I may or may not be begging our elders already to buy every single one of you a copy. I think it's that important. So hopefully over the next 25 minutes, I will show you what I mean. Um, This next chunk of our time, we're going to be looking at the idea of renewal or revival. We see patterns of renewal happening all throughout church history, and we want to ready ourselves as a body for renewal. And so one of the ways that we can begin to do that is through what we're calling formation groups. Let's zoom out a bit. What is CB's vision statement? I don't know if you know this, but... We just kind of like decided this not too long ago. Here it is. We like it. Apprenticing Jesus together, seeking the presence of God for the renewal of Portland. Apprenticing, seeking the presence of God for the renewal of Portland. There's a Western secularist myth that I want to share with you about as we zoom out. And we talk about both church renewal, but also cultural renewal. Stay with me. The secularist myth centers on the idea that at some undetermined high point of church influence, the West was thoroughly Christian. It is imagined that at this high point, churches were filled with devoted believers, and society was filled with Christian values and institutions. This period of strength is usually envisioned as occurring during the Middle Ages, a pinnacle from which the Christian faith has since experienced a decline. This concept could be described as a kind of street-level myth. In other words, anybody walking on the street could, could articulate that this is what they think has happened over the last 500 years to Christianity. And it's founded on the belief that as we progress in time, we will also advance scientifically, technologically, politically, and morally. In other words... We as Christians and the church at large has been going like this for hundreds of years. We started out um, in a place of dominance and now we've just been steadily going like this. And as this goes down, as we go down, technology, the sciences goes up. That is the secularist myth. It's not true. This This model presumes that with the right conditions and influences... Humans are perfectible, and that a kind of human utopia is possible. All we need is to be educated, informed, and encouraged to progress toward a kind of utopia. And both the left and the right politically offer a vision of utopia. Progressives think more government intervention will improve society, and conservatives believe that the free market is the gateway to utopia. Both sides of the aisle, though, assume that specific policies can lead us to a free, fair, and prosperous future. But there's another layer to the secular secular myth that comes thanks to the Enlightenment, which is the movement that developed sophisticated responses to religion and secularism. And they're making arguments that few people on the street are actually familiar with. Here they are. One Enlightenment belief has trickled all the way down to street level, and it is this. 
The notion is that the drive toward human perfectibility and social utopia will be accelerated. It will speed up as religion, understood as a primitive superstition, erodes away in the face of the undeniable facts of post-Christian society. We will be better as a society, as a people, as we look away from religion and try to kind of rid ourselves of its dogma and tradition and move towards the sciences, technology, and this utopia that we've heard of. Does this sound familiar to you? Not many hold to the most extreme idea of the Enlightenment, though, which says that religion should, we should go out of our way to snuff out religion altogether. However, the attacks of September 11th, 2001, caused this belief to gain new life as reinvigorated atheists and other social elites claim that the attacks were the result of unsophisticated, backwards religious extremists, illustrating the danger of faith. For others, living alongside neighbors of diverse religious and cultural backgrounds still see a place for religion, but only if it interprets its beliefs in light of secularist ideals and spiritual knowledge as personal and privatized views. With such thinking dominant among those who control organs of influence in the West, many religious believers assume defeat, seeing religion's only option for survival in submitting to the authority of the secularist script, believing that the only hope for renewal lies in reinterpreting faith and progressive beliefs. In other words, the institution, the church, the people, you and me, and the good book need to change with the times. Does this sound familiar? The Western secularist myth has some things in common with the basic Christian understanding of reality and what lies ahead in the future. Primarily, the secularist myth asserts a religious-like belief that human perfectibility and social progression will continue until we reach utopia. Ironically, the West actually uses a religious framework despite its attempts to rid itself of religion. It sees religion as the enemy holding us back from reaching utopia, even as it seeks to use religion's vision of a future utopia in its framework. Now, the Christian view of the new heavens and new earth is a similar concept in that we will be a utopia, it will be a utopia-like destination, but the purpose of that place is not for us. It's for God. And it's for God to fill us fully, completely, totally with his presence as we walk with him again in the cool of the garden. There are many similarities between the the secular myth and the Christian worldview. The new Jerusalem at the end of the age is substituted for a human utopia. The salvation of humanity by God is swapped out for humans gaining redemption and bliss through their own effort. The historian Christopher Dawson notes that what is known as the belief in progress would be more correctly described as the belief in human perfectibility. Hence, driven by the belief that we can attain perfection without the divine, faith in God gives over to faith in ourselves. 
Thus, the secularist progressive myth seeks to gain the fruit of God's kingdom, such as justice, peace, prosperity, and redemption, without the king. Our post-enlightenment, post-Christian world wants the kingdom without the king. Enlightenment thinkers such as Edward Gibbon looked back to the pre-Christian pagan culture of Rome and Greece in the same way that we Christian revivalists look back to the witness of the early church, seeing a vibrancy that needed to be recaptured. Many of the philosophical leaders in the Enlightenment saw the West as having fallen into stagnancy and decay through its embrace of worldliness or heresy, not through its embrace of worldliness or heresy, but through its embrace of Christianity. In the imagination of the Enlightenment, Christianity was the heresy that caused Western culture's decline. So to recap, a lot of information, I think you're doing great. The West's crude secularist progressive map contains a post-Christian revivalist framework, one in which Christianity itself is the heresy needing to be jettisoned before we can be revived as individuals and as a culture. Christianity is the problem. This map contains a healthy dose of faith built around the belief that history will end with a human-powered social utopia and the potential of human perfectibility. Yet, this post-Christian revivalist belief is beginning to have its own moment of doubt. Yay. What's that doubt? The crisis. The rapid change in the political and social landscape in the last two years across the world has shaken many. A series of rolling crises are exposing human dysfunction, brokenness, and corruption in multiple fields, such as Hollywood, the financial sector, Silicon Valley, militaries, big business, politics, sports, and even the church. It is not just the macro level that the secular myth of progress is being challenged at. Our private worlds are in crisis too. We see the rise of anxiety. Uh, we see the rise of anxiety and mental health disorders, falling levels of IQ, epidemic loneliness and social disconnection, widespread online bullying, and the persistence of discrimination, bigotry, and hatred. Addictions to drugs, food, technology, sex, gambling, and relationships are widespread. Obesity becoming, is becoming a full-blown health issue. In the West, poor mental health is now normative among emerging generations. Life expect, expectancy in the West's two most powerful nations, the United States and the United Kingdom, has fallen for the last three years straight. With all these factors in play, we can see how many are having their moment of doubt. For the post-Christian revival seems to be running aground. And so the question I want to ask you is, are we as a culture in need of revival? In need of renewal? Is the secularist progressive myth delivering on its promises? It's not. Should we be fearful of what lies ahead as things begin to kind of crumble a bit? No. Should we be encouraged? Yes. The West is facing a major crisis as it fails to deliver on its promises of pseudo-renewal, that future utopia of human perfection and bliss. 
This is because God's presence has come down to our culture and is beginning to expose the idols of our day. We need to put on spiritual lenses as we consider what's going on. What we're seeing right now is the hand of God's merciful judgment, which allows his people to rest on nothing but his presence. To others, this feels wildly disorienting and chaotic, kind of like what we see on the news and Twitter. God has inserted a Babel-like kill switch inside of human endeavors that seek to do things without him and his presence. Nothing and no one can truly advance a program of renewal without him. Consider the rescue of God's people out of slavery in the land of Egypt. To the Israelites, God's presence felt like a sign and a wonder. But what did it feel like to Pharaoh and the Egyptians? A plague. What are the cycles of renewal? Examining our cultural moment through spiritual lenses helps us discover that the transition the church is in, which feels like decline, opens up all kinds of new possibilities for renewal to take place. The idea that this new place where we find ourselves could be hopeful seems counterintuitive. Yet a study of history shows that it is precisely at moments like this, when culture is in this place, and when the church feels like it's on de- in decline, when the church appears to be sliding into an uh, unalterable decline, when, when culture is shaken by upheaval, that's when God is on the move again. And so, cycles of renewal. There it is. It looks like this. Renewal takes place, right? If you think back to Pentecost, right? That's the first, you know, instance of renewal. And so renewal breaks out. Eventually, stagnation and apathy sets in as time goes on and the next generation is called to take up, right, this vitality that their forefathers and parents had, which then leads to a period of of decline. And that feels like decline both in quantity, the number of people um, who who are committed to the local church, and also the quality of character in those people. And it's during that time and in that place when renewal then takes off again. Scottish minister James Burns says this, This time of spiritual deadness has its definite limits. The wave of spiritual progress recedes, but in receding, it is gathering in power and volume to return and to rush further in. God has set a limit to the defection of his church. When the night is at its darkest, the dawn is on the way. If we're not careful, we'll only be able to see the tide retreating as a threat, as a sign of bad things to come, rather than the makings of widespread renewal for the church, the world, and for each one of us. The secularist progressive creed is looking weaker than it initially appeared. The gaps between its promises and reality are widening, right? Its contradictions are being revealed in increasingly plain sight, causing significant cultural upheaval and and change, rising inequality between the rich and the poor, distance between elites and everyday people, the growth of loneliness despite our affluence, 
the increase of social fracture and conflict, the disruptive effect of technology upon our environment, our health and social sphere, the growing threat of full-scale war and nuclear conflict in our multipolar world. In other words, as the church is in decline, so is culture. And so I want us to, to ask the question, what is renewal? In specific, what is renewal? Let's define it. Renewal is the refreshment, release, and advancement that individuals, groups, churches, and cultures experience when they are realigned with God's purpose, presence. It is the resumption of our God-given purpose to partner with God fully, participating in his plan to flood the world with his presence. The way I would say it more simply is that renewal is simply the desire to see God's world filled with God's presence in order that all might become God's people. That's what renewal is. It's inherently missional. Renewal is when God's kingdom comes into Portland by the men and women experiencing his presence personally, where they begin to exercise their gifts in relationships, workplaces throughout the city, leading to the renewal of others, and by extension, the culture at large. Does that make sense? You still with me? Do a little bit of this. Where does renewal begin? Renewal starts with one man or one woman who began longing to see God move into their, in their own hearts and lives. The initial impulse for renewal may have begun with a dissatisfaction with the wider culture or even with the way that the church was operating, but renewal that God participates in always moves from an outward dissatisfaction to an inward dissatisfaction with the way things are in here. It is a growing dissatisfaction and frustration with the world, the church, and oneself that moves from a posture of resentment and frustration and bitterness to one of holy discontent. Holy discontent is what happens when our desires begin to align with God's desire to renew the world. When a believer finds themselves discontent with the state of the world, perceiving all of its injustice, injustices and sinfulness, brokenness and lostness, its failing becomes painfully real to us. We also become discontent with the state of the church, but not in a critical nitpicking sense. And this is key. It's not a dissatisfaction that leads to endlessly deconstructing the church and all of her faults like many of my fellow millennials are prone to do. That is not holy discontent for the church. Rather, holy discontent for the church happens when we experience a genuine hunger for the church to be released into its full potential. When you see, and there's so many people who are living, choosing to live in, in chains, right? Even in the church. Or they're adopting and they've totally welcomed the secularist myth as their salvation project, rather than the gospel of Jesus, not willing to fully look inward, right? That's different than just endlessly deconstructing the church for deconstruction's sake. The interesting thing, if you think about an unbelieving critic, right, and a believing follower, both of them have the same issues 
with the church or the same criticisms, right? Hypocrisy, uh, frustration with no one really living into and taking on, apprenticing Jesus seriously maybe, I don't know. But their, their, their criticisms are similar. The difference is that one has accepted defeat and has left over those things, those failures, while the other one recognizes those issues but chooses to hang on to hope as they move from bitterness and anger to holy discontent. Think about the friends and the family members who we know who've walked away from the church or from Jesus altogether. Many of us who haven't left the church yet have begun to accept a posture of defeat as it pertains to God's movement in the Western church because we've seen so many leave it. Hypocrisy is rampant in the church. Not being willing to ask ourselves hard questions, to ask questions of growth further exasperates, I can never say that word, exacerbates the issues. Is that it? It's usually one a Sunday, right? I have to do that once every Sunday. Eventually, being discontent with the church and the world leads to a deep dissatisfaction with the state of our own lives and the level of our own faith. No longer pointing fingers of accusation outward at the problems out there in the world or the church, we grow tiresome with our own inadequacies and shortcomings. This is a discontentedness that seeks real, deep, lasting change in our own hearts. And rather than falling into self-condemnation or paralysis, we cry out to God to change us, to start his renewal here first. The Psalms are full of believers who feel like they're in defeat but who still fervently cry out for God's presence and movement to manifest itself again. And so what does renewal look like? We've, we've looked at what it is, where it begins. What does it look like? Listen to this. As God moves, new life flows into the person or the group, the people of God. New vitality breaks out. The person or people walk with God in his presence, empowered by him. His presence comes with power. Ministry is quickened and empowered. What was excruciatingly slow and challenging before in ministry is now accelerated as ministry is powered not by human effort, by, but by God's presence. The individual, church, culture, or movement centered around God now moves into a time of growth and advance as the kingdom moves forward, releasing his people and those around them. Refreshment flows outward as the church becomes the ambassador of his presence in the world. That's what we want, right? We all want to see that take place. And so, why do we see periods of both decline and renewal in church history that so closely resemble the cyclical pattern of the Israelites in the Old Testament? Have you ever thought about that? The church ebbs and flows, kind of like the people of God before the New Testament, before Jesus. Simply put, because we are fickle beings. We're prone to drift into religiosity or irreligiosity, no different than the early church was. Think about this. Paul's letters in the New Testament address major drifts into legalism or licentious living. And they were written decades after Jesus was walking the earth. 
Within decades, the church is slipping into stagnation. And so renewal is needed again. Paul has to address those wanting to maintain temple rituals, right? And purity laws, which he refers to, refers to as a fall back into elementary principles. Paul has to call the church back to the basics of what Christ taught and lived within just a few years of Christ himself teaching it. Already we see a small picture of the cycle of renewal in the church. A fall back into religiosity, the temptation to the fleshly pursuit of making ourselves right with God, legalism. Grace is replaced by judgmentalism. Freedom is replaced by fear. Mission with suspicion and holiness with a holier-than-thou facade. Faith is thrown back into a pre-Christian posture, back into the flesh, even after Christ has come. The failings of Israel can be repeated by those who, like Lot's wife, choose to look back. Paul also addresses the opposite issue, doesn't he, of irreligiosity. Romans 6, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. This is the drift that the people of God oscillate between. It looks like this. You've got both extremes are entrapped by the flesh. And there's this fine line in the middle that we're called to walk. Where we don't tend towards legalism. And we don't tend towards licentiousness, where we abuse freedom. And so the cycles of church history begin to make more sense, don't they? The bottom line is that we're fickle, quick to forget, prone to wander beings that God is patiently and graciously waiting for us to return back to. Just like the prodigal son, who comes to the end of himself after blowing all the blessings and gifts he received from his father to again embrace the presence of his father and for life and life to the full. The church has been in this pattern for millennia. God patiently waits for her to long for renewal in her own heart. And so, how does red-hot Christianity decline into dead orthodoxy? When I say orthodoxy, this is just a technical word for believing the right things about God, having a high view of scripture, correct theology and doctrine. How does a red-hot, vital Christianity decline into dead orthodoxy? Imagine a generation who encounters God in truth and power in a radical way. Renewal has taken place. They're on fire for him, and they're hungry for his word and for his presence. The church becomes more effective than ever. Thousands meet Jesus. Revival takes place. But then what happens to the next generation? Why don't we see the same vitality in their lives as we do in that previous generation? Often, the next generation is pushed along by the sheer spiritual momentum of the previous generation that has stepped into his presence and vital faith. Practices, traditions, and institutions are initiated to keep the momentum going and to educate the coming generations on how to maintain the vitality. Yet a temptation can enter at this point to rely on these tools, like programs or structures even in the church, without the total reliance upon the presence of God himself. This happens at such a subtle level that it's barely perceptible. Dead orthodoxy gives birth to a Christian posture of defeat. 
I want to end our time by asking you to consider what we talked about 25, 30 minutes ago. These formation groups. Why are we doing these formation groups? Why do they matter? Because we're trying to work against both the cultural milieu we find ourselves in, the Western secularist myth, and because we want to see renewal take place. Don't get it mistaken, though. By simply saying, I would love to see renewal happen, right? Or I believe, I'm hoping for renewal, I'm praying for renewal, without actually looking at your own heart, we don't stand a chance in getting renewal. Formation groups are not the end in and of themselves. They are a means for us to get more of God. More of God's presence. That's why we're pursuing these formation groups. That's why we think they're valuable. As we begin to do this, we begin to grasp who God really is. And strangely, as we look toward God, our true selves come into clear view. We are struck by how far we fall short of him. How we have tried to remold him in our own image. Our pitiable games at playing God are exposed. The ruse of radical individualism is shown for the fraud that it is. Just at the moment when in comparison to God, it seems that we as humans could not shrink any smaller, the divine hand of grace reaches out to remake us. Shocked by the seeming incongruence of such a moment, we find ourselves again standing before the paradox of the cross in which justice and love are held together. Pray with me. Jesus, we're grateful for you. We're grateful for your church. Father, the, the myth of our day is so subversive, it sneaks into the cracks of our lives. We have, as a community, we want to acknowledge that we've, at times, sat in a posture of defeat or been unwilling and stubborn to seek the personal renewal that you so deeply want for us. God, you are our dance partner. And like we learned in the book of Ruth, you're looking for men and women who are willing to ready themselves for the opportunities that you give for renewal. For us to show kindness and grace and love and mercy. God, we have something on offer that our culture has nothing on. The, 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 the cultural milieu of our day, the myths of our day are just that. They are lies. The promises that, that Western secularism has, has given us are failing miserably. They're falling short. And, and, and we feel ourselves as the church in a state of decline because we see people leaving the church or the, the numbers decreasing, God. But it is right here, particularly at this moment, that you seek to change and bring deep renewal. Holy Spirit, we ask that over this next year that you would help us to become people who seek that personal renewal, who, who hunger for you, who are sick of the, 
the, the contradictions and the hypocrisy and the inadequacies in our own hearts so that we could see more people meet, follow, love Jesus. That is our why. That is why we exist. And formation groups are only a means to that end, to get more of you, more of your presence, to flood our own hearts, every single room, God, in our temple. Lord, you, you, we are the temple of you, God. Before it was in a place, and now it's in a people. Each one of us, but God, our temples have a lot of rooms, a lot of rooms, and we don't like to open every door to let your presence in. And so we ask in your kindness and in your grace, would you bring conviction and confession and repentance as we begin to practice your ways, that we would see the church renewed and culture renewed. We love you, Jesus. We together commit to trust and believe that you are on the move in this time. Would you help us to step into that place that we would be ready to dance with you as you lead us. We love you. Amen. I want you to consider what the Holy Spirit might be inviting you into. I know that was a lot of content. Thank you for your patience. We got through it. Hopefully it made some sense. Is God inviting you to join a home community or to think about a formation group? Or maybe to reconsider how secularism has infiltrated your life, your own heart. If you're interested in, in taking any next steps, there's pastors and leaders throughout the sides and the back of the church, uh, this room, that would love to talk with you. The communion table is open. If you're new and you don't follow Jesus or don't claim for him to be your Lord and Savior, we want to encourage you to, to hold back from taking communion. Uh, the bread represents his body, blood the wine or the juice and so we celebrate the renewal week to week right by remembering what God has done for us so go take love you guys we desire to be formed by the word of God in community if you have questions about this week's sermon we would love to hear from you for more information about our church please visit centralbible.church.